This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys. Adapted from his book Pedal Power, Roy Sinclair and his partner Harleko from Japan go cycling the length of Britain in 2006, keen to meet with people living in Herefordshire, a county farming cattle, sheep, cereal, salmon. Sleepless nights by firelight, the stranger Heard by talking long and singing songs, I have laid my loneliness down. So long days end with peaceful friends, there is no richer wine. Acts of kindness, compliments, or concern are made for memory. As we tire on the hills of Herefordshire, riding into rain, it dampens our afternoon exertions. Just as we question the sense of cycling the length of Britain, being overdue for lunch, we spot a lone farmhouse in the vicinity of Amestry. More than that, its conservatory, called Watering Hole Cafe, is open. We find ourselves riding up the long drive, Stuck onto the door is a sticker. Cyclists welcome. That's just as well, for it's the first cafe I've seen in miles, overlooking the woods of Lug Valley. As we reach the entrance, its door is thrown open by a well-dressed woman. Before letting us say a word, she exclaims, Come on in, out of the rain, and don't worry about those wet rain jackets. Her smile says it all, making such a difference. It's good to get out of the rain. Our wet rain jackets lie crumpled at our feet as we do justice to tea cakes and a pot of tea to restore life in us. We take in our surroundings. Their guests, chatting quietly, are mostly elderly, enjoying a rural outdoor outing. It's very British. Its cuisine is cooked in the cafe using free-range eggs and adorned with homemade chutneys, relishes, jam, the marmalade's tasty, and egg on toast or crumpet, which the menu describes as utterly delish. The cafe's owner, Yvonne Tyler, is ready with the helpful hints for cyclists on a journey. She trims our planned route with a little local knowledge as to how to cut out a couple of hilly kilometres as we leave. Even helps us ring ahead to Clunmill YHA. I ask her thoughts on Britain's association with the European Union, and if she thinks Britain will take on the euro as currency. Without a shadow of doubt, Yvonne assures us, Heavens no! Obviously surprised at the question, 
We're much too old-fashioned to do that. Well, if the British are old-fashioned, we can't complain about the old-fashioned hospitality at Watering Hole Café. Cycling into the early evening on the outskirts of the small Shropshire town, fewer than 500 residents, of Clun, we welcome seeing the old mill, for this is where the youth hostel is. Yet, how different than most we stay at. Mel, the manager for YHA, gives us a dormitory room to ourselves, accessed by the steep stairway. With an ensuite and space to spread our gear to dry, it's all we could ask for. Its comfort comes after our spending six hours in the cycle saddle to cover 90 kilometres, an average speed of 15 kilometres per hour. It's a great relief after a day riding so far always minding our gear lest we lose something essential, to leave that locked securely, freeing us to stroll without a worry in the town or country. We've ridden across the fine pastoral land, the Shropshire Hills, one of England's most impressive claims to protecting natural beauty on its land, a green tapestry of woodland, crops and dairy farms. We need wander no more than a few minutes to find, in this typical English village of Clun, a nutritious English pub meal. Wikipedia records that, with 680 people living in the town, research by the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England suggests Clun is one of the most tranquil locations in England. We hear of one cyclist, by use of different criteria, coming to Cluen on a mission to sample all the local brews throughout his end-to-end -end cycle ride. YHA manager Mel, who tells the story, reckons the man took his task seriously. He was really getting into it by the time he arrived here, taking plenty of notes. The cyclist is Australian. Setting out next morning, we're confused at Bishop's Castle, a town of 2,000 people, where a road based on medieval stock routes crosses the English border with Wales. Our unplanned detour round Bishop's Castle takes us to a vicinity of eccentric residents whose houses must preserve their frontages, built centuries ago, yet express artistic freedom through their choice of colour and murals. Drawn as bees to honey is a community of free thinkers, musicians, artists and authors who enjoy the novelty of being different. A curious twist in the town's past is its cemetery having a grave site to an unidentified African in 1801, before slavery was abolished. The memorial stone to the deceased is expensive. Its costs raised by public subscription among those who knew him or her, if not in person, by reputation. It sets apart Bishop's Castle from the prejudice common in other communities of the time against people of low status and colour. The epitaph reads, Here lieth the body of I.D., a native of Africa, who died in this town September the 9th, 1801. God has created of one blood all nations of men. This is the abolitionist's mantra. 
for such to appear in the churchyard as tribute to the unidentified African is testimony, writes a local parishioner, that Bishop's Castle still has that open heart and continues to welcome everyone. It's a timeless place. This town has always been famous for its welcome to visitors, its music, its hostelries. Once it has over 40 pubs, independent shops, its fairs, festivals, a slightly eccentric demeanor. We know we're in Wales when the signs display in Welsh first, then in English. According to La Russe's Encyclopedia of World Geography, Wales has preserved its own distinctive civilization longer than Cornwall. Favoring stock farming in preference to agriculture, Welsh sheep are left to graze on upland moors, coming down to the farm only once a year for dipping and shearing. Below the 1,000-foot contour line, pasturage gives way to grassland and enclosed fields. We ride along one side of a valley, overlooking a narrow-gauge railway which follows the contours of the forested landscape. This railway appears to be maintained, likely still in use, unlike the railway across the border at Bishopstown, which last saw a train in 1936. Harlico's busting, so welcomes my assurance that I can see a small town ahead. When we reach the appropriate building, she quickly disappears inside. I look around this delightful terminal of the lovingly restored railway station of Welshpool and Landfair Light Railway. When she rejoins me, we go in for a cup of tea. One of the staff pours over a map, showing Harlico a good route over the mountains to the Welsh Wild West Coast. A shop within the station brims with railway memorabilia. If only we'd driven in a car to carry it all. We're content with some small souvenirs, including a collection of the popular Eye for the Engine cards, on the strength of one of the lads having happy memories of spending a day riding the trams of my home city of Christchurch, we're offered complimentary tickets to a train journey in Wales. It's a rare privilege to have free access to locomotives running on a 30-inch rail gauge, powered by imports from Finland, Sierra Leone, Austria and Manchester. This is our first acquaintance with the so-called Great Little Trains of Wales. Reluctant to leave, we must, to keep to our plan, coasting on a long descent to an ideal camp. We've covered 83 kilometres for the day. We cook at the camp with ingredients we buy at a service station. We welcome the walk to Buckley's Pine Pub as a means to mingle with the local Welsh people. Instead... We end up talking to a Scot, Roland, who owns the campground where we've set up our tent. He mistakes us as owners of the silver Mitsubishi parked beneath a tree on a rise up the road till he spots the New Zealand flag sewn to my jersey. It jolts recollections of the 1970s when, as a young man, he weighs up the merits of the assisted passage migration scheme both Australia and New Zealand offer after World War II. The cost to each individual is ten pounds. The ten-pound palms, I proffer. Children travel free. Populate or perish, is how an Australian politician describes its policy aiming to raise immigration to supply workers for booming Australian industry, 
attracting them by travel subsidies to Australia or New Zealand. Other inducement is a government guarantee of employment prospects, affordable housing and overall more optimistic lifestyle. In reality, migrants go to live in basic migration hostels and their weighted job opportunities often fall short of expectation. Australia attracts more than a million migrants from the British Isles between 1945 and 1972. There's also a campaign called Bring Out a Britain. The scheme isn't limited to migrants from the United Kingdom. People born in the Irish Free State and in southern counties of Ireland before the Republic of Ireland exists qualify as being British subjects. It's Rowland's perception then that Australia is so remote an outpost as to be akin to going to Mars. Everything there bites you so you die. Australia's a terrible place, he assures me. Now he regrets not taking the chance. Speaking as a Scot, he says that a New Zealander is treated shabbily when entering his homeland, Scotland. It's a sore point with me, too. But a conversation I'd have been reluctant to initiate. Roland continues, It's terrible that a German person can walk into Britain while you New Zealanders are considered aliens, having to go through all the passport controls. You people fought alongside Britain in two world wars. I agree with Roland that that's the case. The third most numerous nationality among fighter pilots in the 1940 Battle of Britain are Kiwis, says Roland. It's all because of the European Union, but we Scots aren't Europeans. Changing tack, I ask Roland, a likeable guy with hardly a trace of Scot accent, why are you drinking beer when Scots traditionally favour whisky? Roland. Ah, whisky makes a terrible person of you. That's why the Scottish clans fought each other, you know. Later in the shipyards of the Clyde, all the earnings are lost to whisky, gambling and pickpockets in the pubs. When a man arrives home drunk and his wife asks, where's her wages? She's in trouble because there'd be nothing left to give her. That's the trouble with the Scots. I ask, in that case... What should we drink when we get to Scotland? Roland. Why, whisky, of course. Only now does Roland realise we're not the ones from the parked Mitsubishi. We're cyclists heading for John of Groats. Road signs remind us we're now cycling in Wales. Taken aback, Roland makes some gloomy predictions. It'll take five years to get there by bike. He blurts out, be careful you don't be buried in snow in winter, just be careful. He commends us on our choice of pub, neglecting the fact that it's the one closest to his campground. The other pub is the Red Lion, all Welsh people, won't understand a word if you went there. Smiling to ourselves, we retrace our way to Roland's camp, where our tent is now full of vociferous midges. We hear they're a bugbear in Scotland. So here in Wales, too? It's nothing new to Britain. Captain Cook notes during his exploration of Fiordland in the 1770s that sandflies plagued his expedition with their painful blood-sucking bite. 
Midgers, at least, being a tiny two-winged fly resembling a mosquito, do no harm to humans. Their tiny bodies tangle in our hair. Yet, as if by magic, they've gone by sun-up a pleasant surprise. Beguiled by their beauty, the Welsh welcome to Wales the rhododendron. Now a noxious weed in many parts of England, yet admired by many as ornamental shrubs of the heath family, growing naturally in temperate zones of Asia, America, and of Europe. We wonder if Wales will eventually give up trying to eradicate rhododendron while its flowers brighten otherwise drab landscapes. True, growers never intended it get out of the garden, knowing eating its green leaves can potentially poison wildlife. Nonetheless, we see in Wales whole hillsides now flowering in rhododendrons. It reminds me of strikingly similar issues arising from the actions of a New Zealander. She collects seed from colourful blossoms of the Russell Lupin to sow beside laybys as she travels tourist routes in South Island high country. It didn't take long for exotic lupins to invade braided rivers and alpine plains, as if to suggest they have always been part of this environment. We cross the Cambrian Mountains. The last miles of the road to its summit are very challenging. We're standing on our pedals, clawing up a 14% gradient to the top of one of Wales' high passes. Then it's gloriously downhill, the flanks of Mount Snowdon, bringing us to the pleasant Welsh town of Dogla. Enduring the cold shoulder of prejudice from their neighbours for years, a local community of believers in the religious movement, the Society of Friends, often called the Quakers, decides in 1686 to follow a local farmer to Pennsylvania as emigrants. There, they hope, people will leave them in peace to practice their religion together on their own land. Dogelow comes to light in the 19th century for its gold discovered in the hills. Since 1923, it becomes the source of gold for royal wedding rings, whilst also making gold jewellery for the market. Another treasure over centuries is the industry building boats from nearby oaks, from which comes the oak bark ideal for its tanning industry. This town has tall buildings, grey stone and slate. A web of narrow streets is sometimes concealing commercial properties left empty and in poor state of repair. To remedy it, the Dogalau Townscape Heritage Initiative joins with the Welsh Assembly's Historic and Archaeological Body and Snowdonia Park Authority to restore Dogalau to good repair in heritage buildings the empty floors again occupied, the Welsh way of living reinvigorated. Their language, still spoken fluently by at least half a million native speakers, is a very old and difficult tongue for outsiders. We don't understand a word of it while we're there. Fortunately, English is spoken at Dogalau's tour information kiosk. Its staff tell us about a 16-kilometre cycle track along a former railway that takes us to Barmouth Bay, a superb off-road trail beside a broadening river. It's popular. Middle-aged couples look fit as they share this gem of a trail with the world. We pay the toll of about $1.60 each 
to cross the bridge to Barmouth, in perfect time for lunch, a rest while admiring the old arched rail bridge and the harbour of small craft bobbing at their moorings out in Cardigan Bay, sheltered from wind and waves. Resuming the ride, we find our route north lies close to a narrow-gauge railway, one that began before the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi, without locomotives. It originally relied on gravity and horsepower, gravity to roll wagons weighed down in loads of slate from quarries ten miles inland. It's an astonishing success story. Slate, popular for building roofs, is for export by boat from Port Madoc. Inland, the slate quarries are about ten miles away, uphill. By laying the narrow-gauge rails, loading eight empty wagons with slate, then placing two brakesmen to slow the speed of descent, the wagons should safely reach the port by their own momentum, thanks to engineers' careful calculations of gradient. These include putting passing loops, a tunnel, and bridges in the line. It carries a maximum of six trains daily in each direction. Loads coming down the line need one and a half hours each trip. Going back up to the quarries, the now empty wagons rely on horses to haul them, taking six hours to make the journey uphill. At least they won't have to make their own descent, those horses. They have their own wagon to ride back down again. That way of working works until the age of steam overtakes travel. The train is now 80 wagons long, engaging three brakesmen to control descent, there being about one wagon in every six equipped with brakes. That way of working works well for 30 years till the advent of vacuum brakes in 1893. Yet slate is facing a decline in demand as new forms of roofing compete with the traditional, bringing an end to the Fenniog Railway but rail enthusiasts decide on bidding for the narrow-gauge railway as tourism grows after World War II. It isn't easy, as other sectors strive to use the rail corridor to carry a cycle and walkway and to incorporate in a hydroelectric power station. As an hydroelectric dam fills its reservoir, water floods a section of the disused railway. It's difficult to see how to resurrect it, were it not for the initiative of a supreme advocate, Alan Pegler, OBE, who never ceases to inspire others when they sense only doom to their project. Certainly, the difficulties are formidable. Others plugged a tunnel where the dam raised the lake over the original rails. Three Cornish tin mine engineers come to light with a mind to bore a new tunnel, higher, through a mountain spur of granite. 
Rocky spoil from inside the tunnel goes to crushing and grading as ballast for the new track at the raised level. The new tunnel's lined using the shot-creting technique. It's a way of surrounding steel mesh with wet cement quick to set. A man still at work on the last day before the railway company went in receivership returns nearly 20 years later as a volunteer to resume repair of the same locomotive. Gung-ho volunteers, dubbed the Deviationers, take on long-lasting projects such as a railway overbridge in poor repair and reputed to have the least headroom of any other in Britain for road users below. Fundraising covers costs for specific needs, but the work is largely from volunteers. They restore four footbridges and a bridge as part of their achievement, so that 13 years after they take it on, the volunteers have the satisfaction of seeing a full-length passenger train run on new rails through their new tunnel in 1977. Today, it attracts 200,000 passengers a year, making it the second most popular tourist activity in Wales. We're keen to set aside our bicycles for a day to experience this charming relic, the world's oldest operating independent railway for ourselves. We'll spend the night here in Porthmadog. It's hard to find the campground. Climbing a steep hill, we're at a hotel. The bistro isn't offering any services. Even a cold beer is served grumpily. Evidently, all eyes are glued to the large screen somewhere behind the bar. We sip our beer alone. From the rousing cheers out back, 
It seems we've arrived in the midst of a World Cup game. England versus Trinidad and Tobago. England wins. Two goals to nil. And we invite you on Historic Souvenirs to join us again same time next week for anecdotes of the cycle trip mounted by Roy Sinclair and Harlequin back in 2006. This program is broadcast on 3FM 89.0, proudly supported by New Zealand On Air. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.